Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores histories of military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, The Mysterious Disappearance of Charlie Nine. Today's episode of No Home for Heroes is taken from case number 0344 in the files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. The hero in today's episode was awarded the Navy Cross Medal for his action in the skies over Europe, but he never knew of the award. He survived incredible odds in Europe to return to duty months later in the Pacific Air Campaign against Japan, but strangely disappeared on a routine flight surrounded by three squadron mates in a clear and calm sea and sky. I'm your host, Rick Stone, bringing you another great and true story from our vault of history's military mysteries. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We invite you to listen to all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. We dedicate this episode today to our own intrepid investigators here at the Foundation, who, frankly, just hate it when they take on an assignment to help a family find a missing service member and fail to solve the mystery. Here's the story of one of our failures. Sadly, it's not the first time we weren't able to find an MIA, and it probably won't be the last, but we will not stop trying, ever. Today's hero is one of those fellows who has four names. They're rare, but we find a few of them every now and then. Charles Wilburn Scott Hewland was born in St. Louis, Missouri to Charles and Gertrude Hewland. He was known as Wilburn to his family and friends. You know, with four names, picking Wilburn out of that had to have been a chore. Wilburn's father worked as a traffic manager in an oil refinery and Wilbert attending Wichita Falls High School in Wichita Falls, Texas, where he was described in his senior yearbook as, quote, extra lively, end quote. He graduated in high school in May 1936. At the time of the 1940 census, Wilburn was living with his sister, Loretta, her husband, Raymond Nipper, and their daughter in Wichita Falls. Wilburn stated he had completed one year of college in 1940 and worked as an apprentice at the Wilson Manufacturing Company in Wichita Falls, Texas. Wilburn joined the U.S. Navy Reserves on 5 June 1942 and was commissioned as an ensign on 4 September 1943. Ensign Hewland attended flight training at the Corpus Christi Naval Air Training Center in Corpus Christi, Texas. He received additional pilot training in Melbourne, Florida and Norfolk, Virginia, before being assigned to Squadron VF-74 on board the escort carrier USS Casson Bay in November 1943. Casson Bay departed Quonset Point, Rhode Island on 30 June 1944 and arrived in Oran, Algeria on 10 July 1944. 
Throughout July 1944, Ensign Hewland engaged in anti-submarine patrols and flight operations in the Mediterranean while training to assist the Allied invasion of southern France that had begun on June 6, 1944. The Casson Bay departed the island of Malta on 12 August 1944 and arrived in the original invasion area off the Normandy coast three days later. For about a week, Ensign Hewland piloted an F-6F Hellcat fighter on a variety of missions to support the Allied landings and their continued fighting inland. On 20 August 1944, Ensign Hewland participated in a six-plane sortie from the USS Casson Bay, which is best described by the award citation below. Quote, The President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting the Navy Cross to Lieutenant Junior Grade Charles Wilburn Scott Hewland, United States Naval Reserve, for extraordinary heroism in operations against the enemy while serving as pilot of a carrier-based Navy fighter-bomber in Fighting Squadron 74 attached to the USS Casson Bay in action against enemy forces during the Allied invasion of southern France on 20 August 1944, penetrating deep into enemy-held territory on a six-plane reconnaissance mission, Lieutenant Junior Gray Hewland executed a series of strafing runs over the enemy and an enemy motor convoy. Undaunted by intense anti-aircraft fire, which forced three planes out of action, Lieutenant Junior Grade Hewland continued his attacks to contribute to the destruction of four enemy tanker trucks, 15 troop carriers laden with personnel, and one command car. He continued to participate in a second strafing attack against another enemy truck convoy to assist in the destruction of approximately 14 additional enemy trucks during the bitter action. With his plane subsequently damaged by hostile fire and out of control, he bailed out over enemy territory, made a safe landing, and subsequently reached Allied authorities. By his gallant courage, initiative, and devotion to duty throughout these perilous operations, Lieutenant Junior Gray Hewland upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. End quote. Well, after surviving the bailout, Ensign Hewland's, you know, trials and tribulations were not over. He evaded capture and ultimately, this is hard to believe, ultimately he made his own way back to London, England. That's across the English Channel from where he was shot down. And he arrived there scarcely three weeks after he bailed out on 9 September 1944. He was later transported to New York and assigned it back to Quonset Point, Rhode Island. In December 1944, Ensign Hewland was promoted to Lieutenant Junior Gray. Lieutenant Junior Gray Hewland reported on board the USS Shangri-La on 2 January 1945 for carrier duty in the Pacific. He was attached to Squadron VF-85, which was known as the Sky Pirates. Each aircraft in the squadron had the distinctive lightning bolt depicted on their squadron patch painted on the vertical tail surfaces of their airplanes. On 23 April 1945, Lieutenant Hewland 
was assigned to fly combat air patrol from the USS Shangri-La as a member of a four-plane division divided into two sections. Lieutenant John Schroff was designated the division leader of the first section, with Lieutenant Noel Fox as his wingman. Lieutenant Hewlin was the section leader of the second section, with Ensign Myers as his wingman. Shortly after 13.50 hours, that's not quite 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the section was assigned to investigate an unknown airplane that was picked up on the Shangri-La's radar. Ensign Hewlin, well, at that time, yes, Ensign Hewlin, well, at that time was Lieutenant Hewlin. Lieutenant Hewlin was designated as the Charlie Flight. His actual call number was Charlie 9. They were vectored by radio from the Shangri-La to intercept the identify the unidentified airplane that was appeared on the Shangri-La's radar. It was due north of the ship at a range of about 7 to 10 miles and an altitude of only 700 feet. Lieutenant Schroff detached Lieutenant Hewlin using radio call sign Charlie 9 and Ensign Myers to fly below the cloud ceiling, which was about 1,000 feet, while Lieutenant Schroff and his wingman stayed high above them, about 3,000 feet. Ensign Myers was the first, which was, Ensign Myers was Lieutenant Hewlin's wingman. Ensign Myers was the first to sight the identified, unidentified airplane flying at about 700 feet above the water due north of their position. All four fighters rapidly closed on the plane and identified it as an American C-47 transport plane flying in a southeasterly direction. The next few minutes of the patrol are best described by an excerpt from the official aircraft report. And bear with me because the copy we have from the National Archives is pretty fuzzy, so... I'll give you the best I can in trying to read exactly what it says in the report. Quote, The pilot was engaged as a section-section leader of a four-plane combat air patrol orbiting the carrier. A bogey was picked up and the patrol was vectored out to investigate. Due to an overcast at approximately 1,000 feet, the section split, one staying above and the other below. The bogey was identified as friendly by Lieutenant Hewland's wingman, who was flying on the starboard side, slightly ahead of the beam. Now, that's the right side. As soon as the plane was identified, the division leader turned to starboard to rendezvous. Lieutenant Hewland's wingman swung to starboard to join them, thus turning away from Hewland. When the division joined up, which was approximately 45 seconds, Hewland was missing. The search was conducted carefully covering the area, but no trace could be found of either plane or pilot. The distance of contact from the ship was about 10 miles. The fact that Lieutenant Hewland's wingman momentarily lost sight of him by turning away reemphasizes the necessity of two plane sections staying together at all times as the minimum unit to watch out for each other and for mutual support. Circumstances in this case were such that Hewland's wingman was not totally at fault in turning away. End quote. 
When he could not be located and no further radio contact was heard from Charlie 9, Lieutenant J.G. Hewlin was officially listed as missing in action, MIA, as of 23 April 1945. In accordance with then existing federal law, the status of Lieutenant J.G. Hewlin was changed to, quote, presumed dead, end quote, a year and one day later on 24 April 1946. In November 2017, the family of Lieutenant Hewlin contacted our foundation and requested our assistance in providing information about Lieutenant Hewlin's loss. Well, it was obvious from our analysis of the incident that whatever occurred to cause Charlie 9 to become detached from the other aircraft in the flight must have happened in a matter of seconds and in such a catastrophic nature as to preclude Lieutenant Hewlin from using his radio to send out any type of mayday distress call. Curiously, there's no indication in any available military record, including Lieutenant Hewlin's individual deceased personnel file, that the Shangri-La was able to track Charlie 9 on radar when it was noticed in less than a minute that he was missing from his flight. There's also no mention of any fuel issues in the Charlie flight. And given the circumstances described, the time aloft from launch from the carrier, and the known endurance of the aircraft, it just does not seem likely that Charlie 9 simply ran out of gas. We can surmise from Lieutenant Hewlin's heroics over Europe, his Navy Cross citation, and his survival and escape that he was not prone to panic in a stressful situation. In fact, by all accounts, Lieutenant Hewlin was a cool and capable customer under fire. While the other three members of Charlie Flight saw no indication of a crash during a search after Charlie 9 became missing, the fact is that sighting wreckage or a downed airman in a life raft in the open ocean is extraordinarily difficult. The F-4U Corsair flown by Lieutenant Hewlin was notoriously difficult to land, even on dry land, due to its long nose and forward wing configuration. One can only imagine the difficulty of crash landing this type of airplane in the ocean. But even with an engine failure on the Corsair, the Corsair's battery system should have still powered Charlie 9's radio. But no distress call was ever heard from Charlie 9. The fact that the entire Charlie flight encountered a land-based American transport plane during the intercept mission indicates that some airfield was within the 1,600-mile range of the C-47, and our analysis shows that given the course heading attributed to the C-47 of 150 degrees, it is likely that the transport plane was flying from the Philippine Islands toward Ulithi Atoll when it was encountered by Charlie Flight. A very rough estimate of the possible location where Lieutenant Hewlin was last seen was determined by Foundation investigators. And, frankly, the estimated location is in the middle of nowhere in the trackless Pacific Ocean. It is extremely unlikely that the body of Lieutenant Hewlin could have washed ashore on any island. Frankly, there weren't any islands near the presumed lost location. Our investigation uncovered no evidence to support that very unlikely possibility. In fact, a preponderance of the evidence indicates that Lieutenant Junior Grade Charles Wilburn Scott Hewlin 
was killed during the afternoon hours of 23 April 1945 by the crash at sea of his F-4U-1D Corsair fighter airplane. It is believed that some unknown mid-air catastrophe to the aircraft prevented Lieutenant Hewland from sending a radio mayday distress call from Charlie 9. The lack of radar contact of his aircraft after he went missing and the fact that he was flying very low at only 700 feet altitude, which precluded a successful parachute escape, indicates that Lieutenant Hewland's aircraft struck the water almost immediately after he was last seen and his aircraft quickly sank into the Pacific Ocean. There's no indication in any available wreckage or any available record that the wreckage of Charlie 9 or Lieutenant Hewland's body was ever recovered. As of today, Lieutenant Junior Gray Charles Wilburn Scott Hewland is officially listed as missing in action and unresolved by the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Well, you know, it's remotely possible, remotely possible, that Lieutenant J.G. Hewland's body was washed out of the wreckage of the sunken Corsair. But it's more likely that the remains of Lieutenant Hewland are currently entombed inside the wreck of Charlie 9, somewhere near coordinates latitude 19 north, longitude 135, and lying at a depth of over 18,000 feet in the Pacific Ocean. And in our ironic postscript, Lieutenant Hewland's Navy Cross Medal, the second highest award in military service just behind the Medal of Honor for his awarded heroics in Europe, that medal was only given posthumously after Lieutenant Hewland's death in the Pacific. In other words, Lieutenant Hewland died never knowing of this tremendous honor a grateful nation was to bestow upon him. So, the mysterious disappearance of Charlie Nine remains a mystery. And it, frankly, is highly unlikely that it will ever be solved. But, and there's always a but in history's military mysteries, we never know what the future may hold when As the book of Revelation says, the sea shall give up its dead. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer to listen to. No Home for Heroes is featured on just about any podcast site all across the world. We greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We again thank you for your support of our mission to provide information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. Every assistance counts, and you do make a difference. Until next time, be careful. Be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them. <laughs>